That's all the pulpit moving for today. Good morning. It is great to be back with you all. It's a good day. We are uh, entering a new chapter together as a church. We're, we're not a church in transition anymore. Amen. Amen. Thank you. A few years ago, we had, we had no lead pastor. You had a, you had a youth pastor and there, were no, there was no elder team. We had a health assessment done by our association to help get us back on track. And God brought Gary and Barbara here, as we just uh, were aware of, and to, to help us. To help us get back on track. And, and that's what they did. And that's what God did. And I think looking back, I, I hope, that's my hope for all of us, is that we can look back and, and as hard as the last few years have been, we can see the hand of the Lord in it all. The whole way. Every step of the way. A new, a new team of elders has been trained and formed. Uh, most recently, you called me to be your next lead pastor, for which I, I am uh, humbled and, and thankful, and uh, that is not something I take lightly. It is something I look forward to. Uh, the Lord uh, working through me and, my, and the elders and, and my wife and I and our family really working through all of us as we each play our part in the body because God's got a part for all of us. We're no longer a church in transition, but that doesn't mean that there isn't work to be done. There's revitalization work for all of us to be a part of. And we live in a world and in a community with great needs, but there are none greater than for spiritually lost and dying people to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and to respond. And what our community needs is to see the kingdom of God advancing here on earth and in our community as it is in heaven. There's kingdom work to be done in us and through us and out of these doors and into our homes and into our places of work and our neighborhoods, our schools and our sports teams. And today, we'll be beginning a new sermon series around this theme of building well. Because it's our desire that God's kingdom would grow and advance through us. We begin this morning by looking at one of Christ's letters to one of the seven churches in Revelation, his letter to the church in Sardis. These letters can be sobering, but know that I don't intend to use it to scold you, but for this to be a text to caution us. So that as we begin to build, we do so in a way that is first pleasing to Jesus. And avoid receiving a letter like the one that the church in Sardis received from Jesus. So let me tell you a little bit about the church in Sardis, or Sardis in general as a city. 700 years before this letter was written, Sardis was one of the greatest cities in the world. This was the city where the king of Lydia ruled over his kingdom in great splendor. And the wealth of Sardis was truly legendary. Sardis, the, the topography of it is unique. Sardis uh, was upon a, a plateau 1,500 feet up on, 
on a plateau surrounded by steep cliffs with a fortifying wall at the top. The this, this city was thought to be impenetrable. But in 546 BC, Cyrus the Persian led a small band of soldiers up a narrow crevasse in the middle of the night. And once they reached the top, they found that there was no one on guard. The people of the city of Sardis got complacent. They were not watchful. And the city was taken easily. And you'd think after something like that, you'd learn your lesson. But again, in 214 BC, Antiochus the Great took the city again in the same way. Again, no one was on guard. No one was watching. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me, right? At the time of this letter, Sardis was only a shadow of its former self. And many cherished the memory of the glory days. It has been said of Sardis that Sardis was a city of peace. Not the peace won through battle, but the peace of the man whose dreams are dead and whose mind is asleep. The peace of lethargy and evasion. This morning, we're going to look at Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. This is Jesus' letter to a church in a city that was once alive, but failed to watch and paid the price. And this is a warning to a church to stay alert, lest they suffer a similar but far more serious fate. So I'd like to invite you to stand with me as I read the first six verses of Revelation 3. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then, What you have received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father, before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. It is rich and powerful, and we pray that it would work in our hearts this morning to convict, to challenge, to inspire and encourage. Help us to be more like Jesus, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. If you remember nothing else from this sermon, remember this. Faithful kingdom building 
requires that we be watchful, that we stay alert to the gospel. Faithful kingdom building requires that we be watchful, that we stay alert to the gospel. I've got three points for us this morning. The first is this, the world watches. Look with me at verse 1, where we learn that this church had a reputation in the community. They were thought well of and commended for being alive. But we learn that Jesus tells them that they're not alive, they're actually dead. And this should concern us because this means that it's possible for us to build and to gain a reputation for being alive in our community while at the same time being dead in the eyes of Jesus. So what are the kinds of things that someone who doesn't know the Lord might be impressed by and might interpret as us being alive? We once received a Google review from someone who gave our church a four-star rating. That was nice. Uh, They left this comment, though. They said, great landscaping. Building looks kept up and clean. That was it. I think I replied and might have said something like, well, you should see the inside. (laughs) And uh, we're thankful for sure for guys like Steve and and, uh, Dave who who work hard to to keep our facility looking nice. But a nice-looking building and good landscaping, uh, while good things, they can't tell us whether a church is alive or not. You know who has really nice buildings and good landscaping? Mormons. Have you ever seen a Mormon church? They're beautiful. You know, the landscaping is uh, impeccable, but this doesn't mean they're spiritually alive. Or how about this? A full parking lot. Someone may drive by on a Sunday and think to themselves, wow, that church, their parking lot's always full. There must be something really great going on there. Uh, that church is really alive. More people attending is a good thing. It's a good thing. But this does not inherently tell us anything about the spiritual health that Jesus is looking for. You know who gets good attendance? Football games, right? Those stadiums are packed, right? Uh, they're, they're doing something there that's drawing a crowd, but that doesn't mean that the Spirit of God is at work in that stadium. Jesus drew some really large crowds, but most of them left once his teaching became hard. Jesus started his ministry with a core uh, of 12 men, and he ended with a core of 11 men for a net loss of one. More people attending is great, and I, I pray the Lord blesses us in that way. If it means that more people are hearing the gospel and being transformed by the power of God. I pray that we experience that kind of growth. Someone may attend a service and be really moved emotionally uh, by the music and, and determine that our church is alive. And I'm so thankful for our music team. They do a great job, don't they? Uh, really blessed by them. But, you know, you, you can go to a secular concert 
lights and the smoke and the music and the, the, the subwoofer. You can feel it in your chest, you know. And you're moved, literally. <laughs> uh, and, and feel an emotional experience. Uh, singing powerful truth to God should move us emotionally. Uh, let, me, let me just say this. It's not wrong to feel emotion in church. We're Baptist church, so I'm going to say that again. It's not wrong for you to feel emotion in church, okay? There we go. <laughs> Singing powerful truths about God should move us. But emotions in and of themselves don't point to spiritual health. Jared Wilson writes this in his book, The Gospel-Driven Church. One of the biggest problems with simply counting bodies and budgets is that there is nothing uniquely Christian about these types of increases. Businesses grow in these ways. Cities grow in these ways. Heretical ministries grow in these ways. Even inside the church, we can become enamored with the things that we can see, the building, the the attendance, the experiences. We can, they can feed our pride. They can give us this comforting feeling, this illusion even that we're doing things good and right. It's natural to feel good when people think well of us. And Lord willing, I pray that we have a good name in our community. That's a good testimony. But it's, it's dangerous when a good reputation starts to drive the church and influence our decisions. Because the, the approval of the world can be a seductive thing. And it's becoming increasingly more difficult in our culture to be thought well of by the world and to not compromise our faithfulness to Jesus. We need to be watchful. The world's not the only one watching, though. We have a king who is perfectly watchful. The world's watching. We have a king who's watching. Look at verse, verse 1. Jesus tells us that he knows their works. He has a knowledge of their works. And in verse 2, he says, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Jesus is always watching, and he sees all. But unlike the world, God has perfect knowledge of all things. He's not like us. He doesn't fall asleep. He's not caught off guard, like the, church, like the city of Sardis. He's not surprised by anything. What a comfort that is, isn't it? To know that in, in, in the craziness of our world, that we have a God for whom that did not surprise, did not catch him off guard. Look at Psalm 139, 1 and 2. Oh Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. In Hebrews 4, 13, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We will all have to give an account for our lives and for how we seek to grow the church because these things don't belong to us. 
He created us. He knit us together in our mother's womb. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. But if we're made, then we have a maker. And if we have a maker, then that means we belong to someone outside of ourselves. And it matters how we live our lives. The church is also his. In verse 1, he says, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. In the context of Revelation, if you look earlier, it's clear the seven stars are the seven churches. He has them. They're his. The church belongs to Jesus. Hear Paul's words to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. The overseers or elders, they don't own the church. As your lead pastor, I don't own the church. It's not mine. Jesus bought it. He paid a high price. There's only blood. He bought it. It doesn't belong, doesn't belong to the membership. So it matters, so it matters how, how we build. build. We're not, we're not, we're not building something so long, long stuff. Think, think, think about the way, way you drive, you drive your car versus, versus the way, way you drive, drive uh, a friend's, friend's car. car. It's a nice car. They lent it to you. you. Yeah, we, we always we always care for care for the road, but. When you're driving someone else's car, you're hyper-conscious of any thing or nick that may happen to it. I know a pastor one time who, at the time he was an associate pastor, but in his youth ministry days, he would often borrow the pastor's, the senior pastor's station wagon. This tells you how long it probably was, probably the 80s. So he would borrow the senior pastor's station wagon to help transport teens to a retreat. Well, one time they were going on a retreat and they needed some more seats. The senior pastor was away on vacation and this guy thought, well, he always lets me use it, so, you know, no harm in borrowing it. So he knew where the keys were. He grabbed the keys and borrowed the station wagon. Well, on the way to the retreat, the station wagon breaks down and they had to leave it overnight and come back in the morning. Well, to his horror... He came back and found the station wagon with no wheels, no doors. It was stripped for parts and vandalized. Could you imagine? And the, and the pastor has gone on vacation. He has no idea. This would be horrible if it happened to your own car, but there's an additional burden that weighs on you when it doesn't belong to you. The church is not ours. It's not even partly ours. And that's one of the reasons why it's good to remember that when our members come together to vote, we're not voting for our preferences as a part of uh, a representative democracy. When our members vote, it's with the intent that we're all seeking to determine the mind of Christ for his church in whatever matter we happen to be voting on. So if the church belongs to Jesus... We must seek to be good stewards, and it matters how we build. And it's his opinion that matters, not the reputation of the community. But what is it that Jesus is looking for from his church? What does he value? What does he 
care about. It's clear from our text that he cares about their works. Ephesians 2.10 even tells us, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we're left to wonder, how is it that the works of the church in Sardis were incomplete? That was Jesus' criticism. Your works are incomplete. I think it's unlikely that they just weren't doing enough as if they were falling short of some quota of good works that that they needed to fulfill. Remember, they had a good reputation in the city for doing something that looked good. I think that the better way to understand this is that their, their works were lacking in character. We all know how easy it is to do the right things for the wrong reasons or to do things with motives that are impure or self-serving. One of the big differences between the watching world and our watching king is that only Jesus sees the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And often when we consider if a ministry is fruitful, we think of the things that are easiest to see with our eyes, things that are easy to count, buildings and budgets and attendance come to mind. But if you look at the other letters to the churches that Jesus writes to, Jesus commends them for certain good works and gives some examples. Things like patient endurance, love, faithfulness, and service. Do these sound familiar? Remember Paul's list of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. But this kind of fruit is not as easy to count as attendance. And there are lots of ways we can increase attendance without Jesus. Counting people is an outward measurement that can't answer the how or the why questions. Hear Jared Wilson again from his book, The Gospel-Driven Church. Some things in ministry take a deeper wisdom to discern or decipher. These can't simply be measured by counting heads. I would even argue that the more important a metric is, the more difficult it is to quantify. I'll say that again that the more important a metric is, the more difficult it is to quantify. This is one reason why Jesus appointed shepherds for his flock and not accountants. Do shepherds count sheep? Of course they do. Counting is not unimportant. It's one sign to help a shepherd note problems with his flock. But it's a blunt instrument. More important still is feeding the sheep, protecting the sheep, making sure the sheep are healthy. One of the key figures in the famous revival known as the First Great Awakening was a man named Jonathan Edwards. He was a pastor and a theologian and, and regarded probably as the, the most brilliant theological mind in American history. Edwards published a book in 1741 called The Distinguishing Marks of a Work of the Spirit of God. 
in his book, Edwards analyzes and synthesizes all that he experienced in the revivals of his day and answers the question that we're asking today. What are the evidences of genuine spiritual fruitfulness? Edwards lists things like this. I think I have a slide with these on it. A growing love for Jesus Christ. A discernible spirit of repentance. A dogged devotion to the word of God. An interest in theology and doctrine. An evident love for God and neighbor. Those are the things that Edward noted most in in an evident work of the spirit of God. But these things are difficult to count. But they're the kind of good works that matter to Jesus. So if, we're, so if we're not our own, but belong to Christ, and the church doesn't belong to us, then it's not right for us to define success on our own terms. We need the right scorecard. We need to be using the right scorecard. We're stewards who will have to give an account. And so we too, the church, must be on watch. The world watches, our king watches, and the church must be watchful. Look at verse 2. Jesus tells the church to wake up. This word can also be understood as saying, be alert or be watchful. There's a continuing sense here. Did you know that no commandment appears more frequently in the New Testament than to watch? Be watchful, Paul tells the Corinthian church. Think of 1 Peter 5.8. Peter writes, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. This command to wake up or be watchful would have been especially meaningful to a church in Sardis who knew anything of their history. Be alert, be on guard. The attacks of our enemy, the devil, are often subtle, so we must be on guard. Jesus told his disciples to stay awake and pray in the garden that you may not enter into temptation. Paul told the elders in Ephesus, be alert to guard the church against false teaching. Look look at what Jesus tells the church in verse 3. Remember what you received. Remember what you received. This is the present imperative. It means to keep on remembering. He's saying, don't allow yourselves to forget. And he wouldn't say that unless he knew how easy it would be to forget. It's easy. Pastor and author Paul Tripp likes to say that Christians are plagued by gospel amnesia. Listen to Second Peter 1, 5 through 9. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, 
having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Peter's saying that if you find that you're lacking spiritual fruit in your life, it's because you've forgotten. You've forgotten that you were cleansed from your former sins. The prescription for a fruitless life is to remember the gospel. To remember that in our sin, we were rebels and traitors to the king of the universe. Deserving eternal separation from all that is good. But this unobligated king took the place of undeserving sinners like us, like me and like you, to pay the penalty for our sin by dying and rising again. An unobligated king for undeserving traitors. He offers forgiveness to all who will have it. In a place in his forever family, not as traitors and rebels, but as sons and daughters. Sons and daughters of the king. Do you see it? What Peter's saying is, if we're struggling to be kind, it's because we've forgotten that we've been shown the most ultimate kindness in Jesus. If we have a hard time loving our neighbor, it's because we've forgotten that Jesus demonstrated the most profound act of love for us and dying for us. If, if we're harboring bitterness and refusing to forgive others, it's because we've forgotten how great a debt Jesus has forgiven us. We've forgotten. This is why it's so critical that Fishkill Baptist Church be shaped by the gospel lest we forget. We need to be a watchful church. The gospel must be at the center. Because not only is the gospel the power of God for salvation, but it's also the power of God to produce the kind of works that please Jesus. Every decision we make as a people, as a church, must be motivated and shaped by the gospel. Pray for the elders and I. We're, we're working on uh, something of a tool, a uh, form, that uh, anyone who has a, a ministry idea, they can use this tool, this form, to uh, process wh- whatever idea they have for, for a ministry or an activity. And what it will do is will help you look at that and analyze that, um, that idea through the lens of our vision. Will this idea help us advance the kingdom in alignment with the vision of the church or not? There's lots of great things out there, uh, but you can't do them all. And so we need wisdom for, for how we should build And one of the great things about having a clear vision as a church is that it helps you to know what to say no to and what to say yes to because everything looks good. Everything looks great. Well, maybe not everything, but you get the idea. The temptation is to compromise and do things in our own wisdom, in our own strength, and it'll be subtle. And oftentimes the battlefield is our hearts, so we need to be watchful. We must watch out lest we be like the overconfident people of Sardis who let their guard down and paid the price. We may find at times our hearts living more for the respect of the world 
instead of the watchful eyes of Jesus. But the good news is that whenever we start to get away from the gospel, we repent. And we know that the loving arms of Jesus are wide open for us to run to him and welcome us back. So that's it. Let's strive together to faithfully advance the kingdom of God here in the Hudson Valley by remembering the gospel and keeping our eyes on Jesus, whose eyes are ever on us. Before I end, I want to address verses 4 and 5. Let me read it for us again, and then I'll wrap this up for today. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. You may be here today, or maybe you're watching online, and you, you're not confident that those verses describe you. You are not sure. You may read that and you might wonder, am I worthy? You're not sure that you will walk with Jesus in white one day. You're not sure if your name is written in the book of life. You might wonder. You might hope. Or you might think you have a good shot. You know? Uh, I think there's a good chance. But you'll wonder. There's, there's that doubt. You wonder, is my name written in the book of life? Will Jesus confess my name to his Father and his angels? I want you to know that today you can. I want you to know that today you can. You see, everything that Jesus says here is language of inclusion. It's language of belonging. Even the description of the white garments, those are feastal garments that you'd wear to a banquet. Every dinner party you've ever been to is just a shadow of the wedding feast of the Lamb that we'll be uh, feasting with around the throne one day. It'll be the greatest party that you could ever imagine. You think Times Square on New Year's Eve is something? Imagine the wedding supper of the Lamb. Will you be there? Will you belong? Deep down in our core as human beings, we all have this longing to belong. We want to be accepted in all the places of the earth where we strive to find belonging and acceptance, they're just shadows. They're shadows of the most perfect belonging and acceptance you could ever imagine. Acceptance with Jesus. You know, I've heard that one of the greatest fears that anyone has is to be fully known and rejected. Even in our closest relationships, we often wonder, if they knew the truth about me, would they really be my friend? Would they still feel the same way about me? If they knew some of the things I did when no one was looking or the thoughts I entertained in the privacy of my own mind and heart, would they really still be my friend? 
the greatest joy is the opposite. It's to be fully known and completely accepted. This is what Jesus offers. He knows your life. He knows every dark thought you've ever entertained. He knows the things you've done when no one was watching. And he loved you anyway. He died for you to cleanse you, to make you worthy. His invitation is, is this. This is for you. Stop striving to make yourselves happy by living on your own terms and come to Jesus and find rest. Be forgiven and be accepted and cleansed. He will give you white garments and you will walk with him. He will write your name in the book of life and confess your name before the Father. He will make you worthy, not because you deserved it or because he was obligated, but because he loves you. Come to Jesus and find joy you never knew was possible. And he will not turn you away. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, he's that good. Come to Jesus today and know for certain that verses four and five describe you. Come talk to me after the service. Talk to someone who brought you, a friend invited you. Uh, There's nothing more important than to make peace with God through his son, Jesus Christ. We'd love nothing more than to talk to you about that and help you know more about how to do that. But for now, let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we need to be reminded so often that we are not our own, but belong to you. Too often we live as though we are accountable only to ourselves. Forgive us, Lord. When we live this way, true joy is elusive and fleeting. Remind us of the joy of being fully known, warts and all, and completely accepted by faith alone in Jesus. Change us, Lord. Make us a people who love like Jesus because he first loved us. Amen.